Good morning. This is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are uh, we are just after the first day of Christmas. It is the 28th of December today. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Laguna Beach, California. And uh, I am with my father-in-law, Barry Copes, former headmaster, educator extraordinaire, and the author of a new book, editor and author of a new book called Final Exam, coming out by Brook Street Books sometime in 2019. The Kick Aspirational Podcast, if you don't know what it is, is all about helping people break through barriers in in your own life at whatever stage you're at. I like to say that I wasn't chosen by the right school or the right team or the right uh, the right career, so I had to pick myself. And uh, over the years, people have asked how how we were able to create uh, a global energy drink brand. And I think what people are really asking is, um, how can I make the life that I want to make? And so this is about um, introducing stories and people who are breaking through barriers in their life or have done it in different ways at different parts in the journey. And I thought today, as... Uh, as I was reflecting this morning on uh, being so fortunate to have my in-laws in our home uh, during the holidays, that this might be a, a really interesting interview, particularly for people who are educators, have been educated, are familiar with education, and or like the written word. Uh, Barry Copes is, uh, has a PhD in education from the University of Michigan. And English. And English. And... Um, and uh, he's been a fantastic uh, father-in-law and grandfather to our children and, and father to my wife. And I thought uh, this might be an interesting time because you, uh, Dad, I'll let you uh, speak a little bit. But you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You live in the Bay Area now? Yes, we live in El Cerrito, which is just north of Berkeley on a ridge about uh, a mile back from the Bay, Bay Shore. And uh, at about 600 feet so I have a very clear view of the Golden Gate Bridge, and I can follow the marine traffic coming and going, which is a delight to me. Right, because just getting into your history a little bit before we get into the, the book project you're on, um, you have kind of a varied history. You've been a, a teacher. You've yes. been a uh, uh, you've been a Navy uh, officer. Yes. Uh, what was your What was your rank there in the Navy? Uh, at retirement, I was a Navy commander. A commander. You've, you've carried that title well. <laughs> it was uh, it paired really nicely with being a headmaster, but maybe not quite in the ways you would think. Isn't there a book title, Headmaster and Commander? Uh, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's maybe a poem about being a headmaster and commander that we'll that we'll hear later. But um, and so so you what year you you were at Calvin College about the same time my parents were. Yes. In fact, I was sports editor of the college paper, and your father was one of my uh, staffers. Really? He was a, my father was writing uh, articles? Sports articles for me. We should actually dig some of those up at some point. He was this tall, skinny kid. <laughs> Still tall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and um, so you graduated Calvin College in what, what 1961. year, 1961. But you weren't from West Michigan. No. I had been uh, born in Washington State, way up in the northwest corner, just four miles from the border. And when I was 16, my father took a job as head of an Indian mission school just outside Gallup, New Mexico, on what was old Route 66. Oh, wow. And, of course, uh, he took the family So that's western New along. Mexico. Yes. On that's the reservation. Western New Mexico, McKinley County. Uh, Were you living would, on the reservation? It's just off the reservation. There's a... Uh, there's a big solid block, uh, probably 150 miles north and south, 
But then there's what they call the checkerboard area, where like alternate square miles are part of the Navajo reservation. Okay. So we're in that in that mix. Yeah. And what's what most people don't know is that that's only about 20, 30 miles from the Continental Divide. So this is desert, but really high desert. Right. You're you're what about six thousand feet, five thousand yes, feet? Yes, about sixty six hundred feet. Sixty six, almost seven thousand feet. Close to seven. Yeah. You you feel it when you're if you're not used to that altitude, you feel it. You come from sea level and you want to go out for a jog, you will notice. Yeah, I was. I did a. I did. I think you probably remember. I did a project in New Mexico, a political project years ago, before, just before Sarah and I got married, and. Um, uh, being in Santa Fe and you know walking the stairs of the Roundhouse, the state state legislature, you definitely felt those stairs more more uh, distinctly than other places. Yes. So you were and you were you were actually running quite a bit. Uh, is that right? You I were... was. Um, this is before running became popular. Mm. So and this was just just before Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. Yeah. And so this is. You know, one of the sort of the events around which Sports Illustrated was getting started, and and uh, so I followed that, and I was I was slow, but I could run a ways. And uh, <laughs> you know, at that time, if you ran five miles, you were a bit of a freak. <laughs> wow! So people would when when you were running, were people asking you funny questions like? Yes, uh, they'd say, "Run faster," <laughs> which. Or where are you going? Or whatever. Yeah. 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 It was regarded as bizarre behavior. <laughs> and so when you went to, when you, and so your father, so we should just mention this. So your father, Bernie, who uh, passed away not that long ago. He, Two years ago, in or, fact. Right. He and my, he and my grandmother, turns out, were in the same class at Calvin College. Yes. Yes. Although apparently weren't terribly aware of each other. I think my father already had a sweetheart and uh, in back in Denver, yeah. and so he might not have been as attentive to to the ladies in his class. Yes. Well, because I remember this is like you know, you're from Dutch rootstock. We're obviously from Dutch rootstock. Um, that's why our children, your grandchildren, are also from Dutch rootstock. But the uh, we were at your your dad's um, in his room in the retirement home. He was at towards the end of his life, and. Um, he wanted to show Skyler and Willem, my sons, the uh, his his yearbook, and he particularly wanted to show them his basketball pictures because he was on the basketball team. Yes. And I looked at the year, and I, and I you know, I don't, I don't know why it had never come up before, because huh. I met your dad before I met you or Sarah or anybody. Sure. He was my high school uh, homeroom, you know, substitute teacher a couple times. Yes. Um, more than once. We actually had a nickname for him because he. Because he came from New Mexico, he always wore a bolo tie, yes. which was uh, that was unusual in West Michigan. And so we, we his, our nickname for him was Tex, yeah. because it was <laughs> it was uh, it was quite exotic behavior he in Holland, Michigan. That. No, oh, I, I told him that at one point. You know, yeah. I think he did. But he was showing Skyler his basketball pictures, and I was saying, "Do you remember Florence Hookstra? You know, she was she must have been at school about the same time." And as we're talking, I look across the page, and she's. Because she played basketball for the women, for the Calvin 90s. Yes. He played for the yeah, night. Yeah. She played for the 90s. And she was literally across the page. And then we were trying to figure out. He didn't re- recognize her, wasn't familiar. Uh-huh. Um, turned out they were in the same class. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, so, you know, things, things the, 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 the uh, Dutch bingo isn't that, you don't need that many four-letter words. You don't need that many uh, 
chips in order to, to connect the dots. It's, it's, it's a puzzle to me <laughs> because his memory was very, very sharp into his 104th year. Yeah. No, I, I just think they probably didn't know each other very well. I think so. But it's, it's funny when they could be in the same class. And, but and <clears> it was 200 kids, and yes. they probably had different interests. And so anyways, they didn't, didn't know each other. But, um, but your dad, he was a headmaster as well. So he was a headmaster in both up in Linden, Washington, right? Yes. Yes. And then, which is a Dutch, little Dutch community up there. Yes. And then, this is kind of interesting. So the the with the Christian Reform Mission Board asked him to to, to consider Rehoboth mm-hmm. and to go down and look at the, the Indian the Navajo school. Yeah, he had he had been had an interest in <clears throat> that mission school for uh, probably for a couple of decades before he knew about it. And uh, when he was graduating from college, Rehoboth was already a well established. Uh, school. I think it was founded uh, pretty close to the turn of the uh, of the century, and so um, when we arrived in 1955, the school had been there for 50 years or so. Wow. Um, and, and you know, the, the, so Rehoboth is, I mean, it's a fairly well regarded school. You know, one of mm-hmm. two friends of mine from Wheaton College, um, one that I don't know as well as the other, but <laughs> Tim Stewart. Yes. Who. Uh, has gone on to be the head of a number of international schools in Jakarta, the Jakarta International School, the Singapore American School, and the... Uh, Tim was high school principal there. Yes, and he's, he's, now he's in Ethiopia. He's, I believe he's head of school. He was high school principal at Singapore American School as well, and now he's, yes. he's in Ethiopia uh, uh, doing a great job, I'm sure, with the school there. But so, um, so when your dad went to Rehoboth... There, he had kind of some progressive ideas about how to how to run a, a school for a, kind of a mission school. Is that, is that right? I think so. Um, there were some large uh, and long-standing government schools um, around the reservation area in Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, and a number of others. And they attempted to be conventional American uh, comprehensive schools. And uh, Dad was always much more personal. He was always going to be a lot more effective as a teacher or a head of school when he was known as a person, not just as the principal. Not by title. Yeah. Not by title. And so he was well suited for a relatively small school where he could know, not just recognize by name, but know each one of his kids. And um, so he brought that pretty intense personal interest in people to being head of school. Did And later, as I mean... I, I'm guessing that's informed a lot of, of your thinking about education as well. I didn't realize it, but I absorbed a lot of that yeah. into into my own uh, strengths and um, values uh, as a school administrator. And, and that the education has to be personal. It has to be specific right. to the student and where they come from and who they are. Yes, and I think who they are. And this is part of the religious tradition in which my father was raised and which I was raised. Um, The sense that this is not an anonymous cosmos, 
this is a creation. And uh, take, extending that to people, each one of those students is a unique and special and precious work of art from the workshop of the Lord of the Universe, who amazingly knows each one of those people and, and loves her. And that sense was very strong with my father, and I didn't understand the extent to which I was assuming the same, the same worldview. And I, I think it's um, precious. Parents, regardless of their theological stance or their tradition, they want their child to be known and loved. Right. To each matter in particular. Yes. Yes. One of the things I like to talk about is, um, and I think, you know, we're both reading this Zero to One uh, book by Peter Thiel, which is kind of an interesting book. Uh, He has a lot of strong points of view, and I think some of them are very good. Some of them, I think you could spend a lot of time debating. But the, uh, one of the things he criticizes in, in education, he's very focused on focusing on one thing and putting all your effort into it mm-hmm. um, about being particular and deliberate, which I think is good. But I also think people have to sometimes figure out what that one thing is. <laughs> Not everyone yes. is born knowing exactly what they're supposed to do. Um, when you talk about you know, developing that person because each of those people matter so much, um, how, do you, how, did, how did you approach that? How do you approach helping somebody figure that out? One of the questions, you know, just for a little background, I think sometimes, you know, there's a really good book that I recommended called um, When to Jump, and it was about a guy who had gone to a great school, worked at Bain, decided to leave Bain to become a, a pro squash player, which you can imagine is, is not a very lucrative endeavor, but it gave him this great sense of purpose, traveled the world, had an amazing adventure, and then, you know, went back into, well, he wrote a book about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I sent it to a friend who was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And his question was, hey, look, I don't mind jumping. I just don't know what to jump to. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I've brought up a number of times on this podcast is this idea. Um, uh, it comes out of, I mean, it's, it's a familiar concept from a lot of things, but I like Jim Collins' way of saying, you know, what are you, it's a, a Venn diagram of three circles. What are you passionate about? Yes that uh, you can be best in the world at, which I take to mean, you know, you have a comparative advantage at, you're good at, Mm -hmm. um, that you can make money at. Yes. So it's not just a hobby. At least a living. Yeah, at least, uh, yeah, exactly. Right. That you can support yourself with. Yes. Um, Doesn't have to be a lot of money, just you just have to, something that you're really passionate Mm -hmm. about. That, that, Mm -hmm. where those three things come together, that's what he calls a hedgehog concept. Is that a familiar concept when you're doing education with trying to help an individual Mm -hmm. figure out what they're supposed to be doing, who they are, and what they're Yes, I think so. And I, I, of course, have to look back at my own life to see how did that work out? <laughs> I, I, and Peter uh, Thiel says one of the weaknesses of our, parent, our present parenting and educational model is that we make well-rounded children <laughs> who are sort of pretty good at everything. But not that great at anything. Not that great at anything. And, and, uh, and the thought is, well, they'll make great candidates for selective colleges. Well, it's probably not true that it will. Right. And I think it leaves kids without a, a deep sense of what, they're, what they might be good at. Uh, for me, moving to New Mexico, 
Um, I found out gradually when, when I was a senior in, in, in high school, lo and behold, I had um, unique ability to run a long ways. Right. And not terribly fast, but uh, in the first race of my uh, track, uh, uh, track career, in my senior year, I was entered into the mile run at the All Indian Invitational in Albuquerque at Albuquerque Indian School, and there's uh, the mile was the longest distance contested at that time. <laughs> and uh, so there's no cross country. There was no cross country yet. Okay. And uh, this was the distance that was the premier distance for Native American kids. Mm. There's some famous books about Native American runners right. who, the Barefoot yeah, Runners Billy and other Con folks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Billy Mills. Right. One of the great, great heroes. And um, I hadn't been good at other, at ball sports. Yeah, stick and ball wasn't your thing. No, basketball just, just wasn't, didn't come naturally to me. And we didn't have soccer yet. And uh, I was... a. Uh, 135 pounds, so even if we'd had a football team, I wasn't going to be the tight end. No, probably not. <laughs> so I found this one thing I was good at, and uh, I was shocked to, to win that race. I had never aspired to be great, or to be even really good, or to be an elite runner. But it, it, changed, it changed my sense of what was possible for me. I am sure... Without that, I would have never gone on to, to a PhD program. I'm not sure I would have had the courage to apply for an officer program in the Navy. <clears throat> but that insight that came from being really good at one thing was tremendously influential in my life. It opened my eyes to what was possible for, for Barry Copes. And is that because you started to connect the ability to put deliberate effort into something and then achieve? Or what was the, the courage? What was it that, that gave you that? It was the blessing of failure. <laughs> See, uh, this was a small high school of 52 kids. Yeah. 26 boys, two basketball teams, the junior varsity and the varsity. Oh, wow. And when I was a senior, so everybody I could play, see... Everybody played basketball. Everybody played basketball. I could see that I wasn't going to make a starting spot on the JV squad. <laughs> Your senior year. My senior year. <laughs> oh, man. So even for, even for me, that was more humiliation than I could... That's disappointing. Yeah. Yes. So I dropped out, uh, and instead that fall, uh, I went off on long runs in the, in the sagebrush and up and over the Hogback Ridge and around uh, behind the mountain, and... Um, it was failure. Yeah. It also gave you time to think when you're running all that, all that way. Right. Yes. That's interesting. And were you reading quite a bit? I, you, you know, one of the things we want to talk about eventually, we don't have to do it right now, but you, you, obviously you, you've read poetry your whole life. You yes. write your own poetry. What, what were you reading at the time? Were you reading quite a bit? I was reading voraciously. The, the disadvantage of moving to an Indian school is that for me... The, the instruction had to be aimed at um, a level of skill and knowledge 
that was appropriate for those kids, which meant that even though I wasn't a great student, um, it was it was pretty easy for me. Though, and since they didn't have any advanced math beyond second year algebra, you know, it was pretty easy. Not the homework wasn't very extensive, mm-hmm. and so I just. We didn't have television at that time. <laughs> that, at least it was radio, in that right? Place. You're listening to radio most of the time, then, right? Say, you, did, did you get? You had a radio. Oh yes, oh yes. Right. You listen to radio shows. Listen to radio, radio yeah. shows. Yeah. So, so I was reading everything I could get my hands on, and, and my mother was. I didn't realize it at the time. She was unusual. She had an, a subscription, for example, to the Saturday Review of Literature and the Arts. Out of, out of New York. Oh, wow. And that might, that might probably the only subscription in McKinley <laughs> yeah, County. Yeah. <laughs> and she'd do the double cross sticks in the back and it'd get a little butter and a little uh, flour on it by the end of the week. But um, she was a very bright lady and uh, we, we, we had a lot of stuff to read and all the books that were coming to the school library would come to our address. Right. So I was reading them as they were coming in by the box load. Wow. And so so you go off to Calvin College, mm-hmm. where your father also went. Yes. Another interesting story. I mean, I wish we had Bernie here to interview him. But the, uh, <laughs> where he, he wasn't, he wasn't going to go to college. He, just, he decided to go at the last minute because his buddy was going, right? Right. His buddy Rolf was going to go. And so in, this is in August, probably of about 1929, uh, Rolf said, said to my grandparents, you know, Bernie ought to come to, uh, come along with me to college. This is your dad, yeah. And, uh, and the parents said, well, you think so? What do you think, Bernie? And he said, well, I think I'd like to. And so the first thing they did was to call the pastor, yeah, call the, the domini. The, the Dutch domini, yeah. The Dutch domini, who said, yes, Bernie should do that. And said, if you bought him a car, uh, it would be good for 10 years. But if you send him off and give him an education at college, it will it will be wonderful for him his whole life long. Right. And this was news to my grandparents, who had who had wouldn't have been able to graduate from high school. Certainly would have not had an education. They were in, farmers, effectively. Is that yes, right? they yeah. were from they they grew up in rural, north central Kansas, and, and they were the children of sodbusters. I mean, they, yes, they were. Literally sodbusters, people who lived in sod houses and yes. got forty acres and farmed it, and yes, some pretty uh, some pretty uh, fantastic frontier history there. Mm. So your your dad decides to jump in a Model T, yes, and drive to Grand Rapids from Denver in nineteen twenty nine. Guys, and he wasn't even sign, he was going to go sign up for college when he got there. Yes, and he got there on a weekend. The college was closed because yes. that's what they do. And. So he signed up on Monday and started school. Yes. <laughs> so you, you decide to go to Calvin College because, well, because your Dutch... father had. Yeah, yes. because your father had, and your Dutch Christian Reformed, and that's probably yes. one of the top few choices that most of us had at that so point. So this was an assumption by my parents from, you know, earlier than I could remember. Of yeah. course, Bar- Barry was going to go to, co- to college, and, and the only college would be Calvin. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> you certainly wouldn't go to Hope College. Oh, no. no. <laughs> those reformed no, people, no. those Dutch reformed, no. who knows what happens over there. Right. My father had played <laughs> against Hope College. Right. <laughs> the rivalry yeah. is fierce, Hope versus Calvin. So so you go to Calvin College, and you started, you ran cross-country at Calvin, is that right? Or yeah. Track? How, did, right. how did you end up in cross-country? Well, 
I was, the summer before college, I was clerking in a hardware store and um, a uh, young man came in and introduced himself as Pete Steen, said he just graduated from Calvin College and he heard that I was a good runner and he said, Barry, you ought to go out for cross country at Calvin. I, I could sort of guess at what cross country would have been. So when I got to campus, I, I looked up the athletic office and, uh, and uh, looked uh, and there was a clipboard and I signed my name on it and uh, the coach came out, Coach Dave Tuke, and uh, I introduced myself and he said, I said, you know, uh, uh, how far is cross country? He says, well, it's four miles. Is it, is it team sport? Yeah, he says, it's, it's like golf. Uh, low score wins. <laughs> Combined low score wins, right? Yeah. And uh, I said, well, what are the practices like? And he told me, you know, a lot. Well, we'd, we'd run maybe sometimes even farther than four miles. <laughs> I said, well, I haven't done much of that, but I'd, I'd give it a try. Sure. Yeah. And you did pretty well. I did pretty well, yes. You, you were all American by the time you, were, you graduated. Yes. Division three, all American. <laughs> yeah, I, I played Division three soccer at Wheaton. I was not a star, but the uh, there were some guys who thought they were going to go pro, and and they got those of us who knew we, we had no chance of going pro. Uh, we used to say, you know, I, I could have gone pro, I just wasn't good enough. <laughs> but the uh, <laughs> fortunately in cross country, you don't have that temptation. No, no, yeah, right. <laughs> well, you didn't in soccer either, really, in America. But um, so, so you were on the newspaper staff. You studied English. Did you grad? You studied English at Calvin. Yes. And um, and then you taught in the Grand Rapids uh, Christian Schools for yeah, a while. I studied English with n- no real intention of connecting that to a career. And um, so I I did get a long term sub situation at Grand Rapids Christian High School. And that was, the first semester was in history. And um, these were 10th graders. Yeah. Um, and one of them, a tall, skinny kid named uh, Aryan, um, caught my attention. He was one of those kids that sits right in the front and listens intently and raises his hand slowly if you say anything that diverges from the textbook. Uh, he became a lawyer, and he became my brother-in-law. That's right. Yeah. You, you married his younger sister. Yeah. Although the, you weren't dating her at the time. Oh, no, fortunately. <laughs> that would have been, a, even then, a criminal offense. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but uh, this was, uh, really, it was, it was waiting for my, for my draft to come up. Okay. This was the Cold War, and um, I was going to be drafted. Well, the Vietnam War. Right or was it? Were you drafted? You were drafted for Vietnam or for the? This well, is the Cold War was also this is a picture. This is 1962. Okay. So when I was in officer training, um, that was the moment of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh right, sorry. Okay. So this is the heart of the, the real heart of the Cold War. Got it. Okay. And that, the the enemy. Um, it's earlier than I was thinking it was. Yeah. 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 So <clears throat> I was going to be drafted. <clears throat> My draft board in New Mexico canceled my orders with the understanding that I would sign up for a, another program. 
since I had a college degree, mm. um, that I would sign up for a, an officer's officer candidacy program. school. Yeah. yeah, they were happy with that. And so I reported to duty and uh, officer candidate school in Newport, um, Rhode Island, in that would have been September of 62. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was about October. Oh, wow. And at that point, nobody would have been thinking about Vietnam. Right. Right. Well, the, yeah, we were. Yeah, I, we, Sarah and I just watched the Vietnam documentary, the um, the Burns documentary, and uh, ten parts, I think. But uh, so that was, if we were doing anything in Vietnam at that point, it was very few people, and it was right. wasn't really on the radar for most people. Right. It was more of a French, probably a lingering French problem than an American problem at the time. Right. We were sending advisors. Yeah, yeah, a lot of advice going on there. So, right. so you got to Newport, Rhode Island, and uh, you entered the Navy. And then uh, things heated up for a while. Yeah, um, I was I was graduating from OCS just before Christmas, and uh, I can remember marching around doing my my you know security drill, marching around the perimeter of the of the base there in December, and the winds coming off the bay and off the Atlantic. And, I got to tell you, David, it was cold, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's, so it's the humidity, I, right? Yeah. When when the uh, detailer asked me where I wanted to be assigned, I said, "If you, I'll take any ship out of Long Beach or San Diego." <laughs> I didn't want I didn't want to be on a destroyer in the North yeah. Atlantic in the winter, so they assigned me to a big uh, auxiliary, a big tanker out of uh, out of Long Beach, and uh, so you're on a, a refueling ship. Yes. So, so not yes. as much smoking on that one. Mm. Oh, you're probably pumping diesel, though. Right? <clears throat> we're, we were pump. We actually carried three fuels. Okay. We carried NSFO, Navy Standard Fuel Oil, which is that really thick black stuff. Yeah. And you get that splashed on your white uniform, and you aren't ever going to get it out. Might as well get a new uniform. Yeah, so it's uh, the, the thick black stuff that you have to heat up to pump. Oh, wow. And uh, jet fuel, which is like kerosene. Oh, yeah. And then high-octane aviation gas. Oh, wow. So you did have some explosive. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, we took, we took uh, the smoking lampers out very seriously. Yeah, yeah. And you ended up, so you ended up in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia? Yes. Um, this ship, though, was a, not a glamorous ship. The distinctive was that it was the ship that the Navy assigned as COs officers, captains, four stripers, who had been picked to be captains of aircraft carriers. Oh, wow. And, and the, I mean, that is the premier billet in the fleet. Yeah. And so I had a series of commanding officers who were, who were the brightest and the best. Oh, wow. Who had been picked to be uh, aircraft carriers, the Kitty Hawk and uh, and a couple of others, and so, and since it was a relatively small ship in terms of crew, um, I had direct report to some really brilliant, some top talent, talent, and one of my favorite stories, well, a couple of really, f- three favorite stories that maybe I'll ask you about, but one of them was uh, you actually discovered how a sailor could deliver. Steaming hot coffee filled to the rim <laughs> at the uh, at the navigation deck. Is that right? This is a story. I wouldn't 
I wouldn't put my hand on a Bible, but um, <laughs> you know the the commanding officers up on the bridge uh, during special evolutions, and if anything's significant going on, he has his chair. You don't you don't sit in the captain's chair, <laughs> and uh, he would uh, ring down to his uh, steward. Uh, his captain his cabin was directly below the bridge, and he had his own steward, his own butler, waiter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if it was really stormy. Uh, Oliver would come scurrying up with his cup of coffee and uh, that the captain just run for. And it'd come back up steaming and full to the brim. And the ship is rolling and pitching. And uh, everybody's saying, you know, how does he do that? Uh, well, he <laughs> we found out. That he goes like this. So he would gulp a big piece of it. A, a big mouthful of it, scramble up the ladder, deposit it once again in the cup, and deliver <laughs> so a full cup the, to Captain Butts. Wow. They had, a close, they had a closer relationship than maybe the, the commander knew. Even. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, so there's, there's a couple other really good. I mean, maybe my... My favorite one is is uh, is a, in the Philippines when you're um, you're you had a some of you shared a room with is that right? You're... Yes, I had a uh, I had a stateroom that I shared with either uh, Bill Lorenz or Mike Sweeney or one of the other guy one of the other officer junior officers. Yeah, and one of the one of the guys came back from uh, you were at, what you were in Manila. Yes, we were in uh, Subic Bay, which is just north of Manila, and my roommate at that time was Steve Reber. I hope Steve is still with us. Steve had been educated at Andover. That's pretty good school. And at Princeton. Both decent. Both decent. Yes. It's, not, both, it's, it's no Calvin College, but they're good. Right. They're reasonably <laughs> well known on the East Coast. <laughs> and uh, Steve's dad was uh, chairman of the board of something like Continental Can Company. Okay. So Steve had been raised very well. Yeah. You, I could imagine his mother. And Steve was fond of saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. And that puts it second from the bottom. <laughs> so one, one <laughs> Sunday morning, I was, uh, I was up. I was going to go on, on, on watch. And we were in port in Subic Bay, which is uh, not a fancy port. And uh, Steve came in. And there's was, a lot of distractions for sailors when they're in short A lot of leave. distractions for sailors, some of which are off limits to officers. <laughs> and uh, Steve came in. His, uh, his, uh, his tie was askew, and his, his face was always kind of beefy and red. Uh, but it's, his eyes are bloodshot, and he's looking terrible. Not talking. And, and this is Sunday morning. This is Sunday morning. And you're getting up to get ready for a church service? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I would have gone over to the base chapel. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve came in. He went and got his uh, toothbrush. And he was brushing away, brushing away, brushing away. And he finished. And he take, took that toothbrush. And he flung it in the wastebasket, metal wastebasket of the corner. It went rah, rah. And he looked at me and he said... It'll rot. <laughs> <laughs> May he rest in peace. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that story. So you were, you had a colorful, I mean, I'm sure it was, uh, 
exciting in a lot of other ways too. I, I know you had a, a, a an experience when you were uh, testing a dinghy or something, uh, testing one of the, the boats that uh, was was less less excite more exciting than you wanted it to be. I guess I should say. Well, I think you you're remembering the story I told about uh, being the only naval officer still alive who was man overboard at sea. Yes. Yeah, that's it. We were uh, coming back from the Vietnam coast. Uh, once again, on a Sunday morning, and we were we were uh, an hour or so ahead of schedule, and the, so we're seeing the uh, coast of Luzon loom up, and uh, this is the Philippines, yeah, in the Philippines, right? And the pilot wasn't going to be ready for us, the to take us into port. We had to have a pilot going into this small harbor, and uh, so the captain, Captain Butts. Said, okay, hey, we'll use the time for a man overboard drill. And uh, he ordered the the lookout on the on the stern on the fantail to throw overboard Oscar, the dummy that we use for man overboard drills. And then they we start this procedure. This is a drill. This is a drill. Man overboard, starboard side. So that initiates the whole procedure. One of which is that you man a, a small crew mans the motor whaleboat, and uh, I was the oncoming watch officer, so my job was to be the boat officer in the uh, motor whaleboat. So I had a, a medical corpsman and uh, a boat engineer and a coxswain and myself. So we're scrambling in. Then the procedure is you hoist the motor whaleboat over the rail, you hold it there in the davits while the ship slows down. Right. Uh, so we were probably steaming like 15 knots, and uh, at about 12 knots, there was a miscommunication between the executive officer and the winchman who's back... Uh, lowering the boat. Who is lowering the boat. And uh, what the winchman said, heard, was, lower away. And, and you're in the boat at this point. We're in the boat, Right. Off the, the, me and my small crew. How, how far off the water are you? We're probably 20, 25 feet above the water. Right, so you don't want to, yeah, you got to be careful how you hit that water. And the, yes. boat's, and, and the ship's going 12 knots. Still, the ship is still going 12 knots. 15 and, miles an hour or so. Right. And so you, you, don't, you don't want that boat to hit the water with, with more than about three or four knots of way on. Right. And so we hit the water at 12 knots, and instantly the motor whaleboat swings back on in the cables, and the bow goes under, and becomes a giant scoop. Yeah, fills the boat with water really fast, and now the boat slowly turns over and dumps us all out. So, so now it's a real man overboard drill. This, this is, is not a drill. <laughs> this is not a drill. <laughs> um, what we're all conscious of is as soon as we can hit the water, we're hearing the screws coming, mm. the big screws at the stern. The, the propellers, yeah. The propellers. And they're going ka-thump, 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 ka-thump. And, and we're doing our, our best freestyle away from the ship even before we hit the water. Right. I mean, we're, we're pulling as, with all we can get. We got clear. The ship is going on. The motor whaleboat is thumping against the hull. Uselets, uselets. Yeah. Full water, and uh, so you guys are floating in the open ocean at that we're point. We're in the open ocean. And how far off the coast are you? We're probably uh, about uh, probably.
probably about 20, between 20 and 30 miles. We can just see it, but, you know, we're, in a, we're actually, we, I was conscious that this is where all the ships coming back into port, they're going to do their last trash dump because you don't you don't do it in the harbor. So when you're about an hour out, you get rid of the rest of your trash. Yeah, empty the trash on the fantail. So this is this is sort of a dump zone. So scavengers in the ocean would be yes. aware of where that is, right? Like sharks. Yeah. Yeah. So we're floating there. I I, I get my my small four man crew together and say, okay, boys. No splashing, no loud, no talking, no loud noises. We are just inert trash floating here. Do not call any attention to ourselves. Uh, they knew. They knew exactly what we we're talking about. Meanwhile, the ship is disappearing when we're in the trough how, of the waves. How, how big is the refueling ship? It's a 550 feet. So it's not going to spin around on a dime. Oh no! This is uh, <laughs> this is uh, going to take uh, you know uh, this is going to take several miles to turn this thing around, especially since there's confusion on the bridge. Okay, what do we do next? Do we get a deal with the boat on the side of the boat? We got the boat. Can't yeah. use that to recover the men. Yeah. Ordinarily, they would launch the boat to to recover us, but they can't because the boat's out. You just had one of those. You just had one whaleboat. One way, yes, only one motor whaleboat. Yeah. We have a captain's gig and a launch, but those are not ready to, to put yeah. over the side. And the captain's gig goes in the same davits as the motor whaleboat. So Which is tied that. up the davits with yes. banging on the side of the yeah. boat. So we're out there probably a couple of hours or, uh, uh, before the ship gets around. And then they have to maneuver this, uh, this 25,000 ton tanker. Um, as close enough so that we can swim over and clamber aboard. So, so for this is probably another time you're happy you're not in the North Atlantic. Yes. <laughs> in the winter. Two time. hours in the North Atlantic and. Uh, yeah, that 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 would be two hours too many. That would have been. Yeah. If you've seen the Titanic, you know what happens. Yes. That's that's not good after about yeah. ten minutes. Not so, good. So. Um, so you survived that, and your crew survived that, and you were not eaten by sharks. Not eaten by sharks. And eventually, you uh, you left the navy full time. You you met you. So how did you transition from the navy to meeting your wife Delianne? Yeah. To um, advanced degrees and the other things that you did there, your career and education. Mm, yeah. While I was there, in the uh, particularly the third year I was there. I had to start making serious decisions about what I was going to do with my life. Mm. And I was looking at a couple of things. My, my family career was education. I saw that firsthand. I tried a little bit of teaching and been successful. Yeah. Enjoyed it. My favorite uncle, my uncle Larry, was a lawyer. And uh, I had been told often that I was really resembled Uncle Larry. <laughs> and so I thought, well, one of the things I could do is be a lawyer. Mm. So I did. I had gone and looked at law school, but then ultimately I decided, given what I like to do, what I'm good at, if I'm not going to be in the Navy, I think I'm going to try teaching. 
Um, but I was st seriously, strongly tempted to, to, to spend the rest of my life in the Navy. My commanding officers were giving me lots of affirmation. Yeah. And uh, so I thought about that. I'd saved up about $2,000. Which was a lot back then. When, yeah, at that time. So I was deciding whether, if I was going to stay in the Navy, and I had my commanding officers got me orders to destroyer school, which would be the fast track to command. Right. So I had saved up 2000 bucks. And I was going to either spend it on a on a um, on a Porsche Targa, a, a, yeah, <laughs> on a sports car, <laughs> and go to a, <laughs> go to a destroyer school, or I was going to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I'd gone to college in Michigan, I sort of looked looked uh, there. I could get in-state tuition at University of Michigan, and I applied there. And uh, I was sort of surprised they had, they admitted me <laughs> <laughs> to an English program, and uh, I wasn't at all sure I could do that. But so I got out just before December, and on like January six, I started classes in this master's program at U of M, feeling less than confident, and still. This is as the, the Vietnam War was heating up. Yeah. So there was increasing hostility on campuses like U of M in uh, Ann Arbor to the war. Yeah. To whatever to anything military. Yeah. So I was a bit of a I felt out of place. Out of place. You didn't wear your military uh, uniform. You didn't wear your whites to class. No. Um, but I was still so so close to. The situation that I can remember waking up at night and going over and looking through the blinds of my room to make sure that I wasn't on the ship and I didn't need to go up and get a, 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 a fix of our position. And, uh, <laughs> Hopefully, you hadn't moved in. <laughs> no, no. But it's you, you. That was ingrained in you at that point. Yeah. Right. But because I had saved up some money, I didn't have to work. And um, so I could go full speed ahead. I started in January. I graduated on like uh, the 15th of August with a master's degree, which was faster than I really wanted. I wanted to spend more time at it, sort of <laughs> figuring things out. Figure out where you're going. But uh, the, the University of Michigan dumped me out uh, in August, and I had to teach. Uh, I was offered a couple of teaching jobs. That was when there was a shortage and went straight to work and um, went back I, where I had been teaching history at Grand Rapids Christian High School. And that was a really good place to learn the art and craft of teaching. Mm. Uh, good, well-organized, well-managed place. Uh, parents who were involved in the education. Parents who were involved, kids who had uh, decent um, academic talents generally. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the second, I think the second year I was there, um, moved into a new apartment, threw a, threw a Friday afternoon party, and bumped into this kid, this tall, skinny kid from that I'd taught history to, and said, hey, you could, I've got this party on Friday afternoon. You could come. And, and how old was he then? Oh, he was by then, you know, he's going to be this probably is 20. Yeah. yeah, he's in, going to be in college. Okay, so he's, and was he at Calvin? 
Yeah, he he might have been, no, it must have been like he must have been like twenty two or twenty three. So maybe out of college. He was out of college, and uh, I said, and I'd sort of seen a a girl with him, and said, oh by the way, you could take your sister. And <laughs> he did, and um, Delian walked in to that apartment in south uh, southeast Grand Rapids on Heritage Hill. Oh yeah, and I helped her with a coat, <laughs> and uh, every other girl in that party <clears throat> was in black and white. Delian was in living color. And, <laughs> And that and that kind of kick. That's that's where it started. Yep, I I was uh, I I fell in love with her almost instantly. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And um, so what's the age difference between you and and and, and Delian? Uh, Delian would say nine years, and I would say eight and a half. <laughs> <laughs> so was that uh, was that challenging? Um, you know, she being younger and you being you know a little bit older at the time. It didn't turn out to be. I think the things that uh, drew us together, that we shared, and our pers- personalities, it it matched. It, it was a good match. And the years until now, <laughs> um, the years difference haven't been uh, a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you are. Um, at this point, you're you're teaching school. You're you finished your master's. You've met this uh, striking young young woman. Yes. Um, fortunately, she's also very Dutch. She was born in the Netherlands. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Dutch Christian reform. So you've got you're kind of lining all the all the all the cultural things are lining up. At what point did um, did you decide? So I'm trying to follow your your career path a little bit here because I think it ties into mm-hmm. this book you're doing. At what point would did you say, you know, maybe I should get more education? And, and why did you decide that maybe a PhD made sense? Well, I, first of all, in Grand Rapids, I was always a, a bit of an outsider. I mean, I'd come from the West. I'd come from an Indian school. Now I've been in California and points West. And Grand Rapids is pretty white bread. It's quite parochial. It's it's parochial. Well, I would I would say I mean it's obviously changed a lot since the '60s. Yeah. But if you're in the Dutch Christian Reform community, because I, I we had a similar thing when I when we I've talked about it a little bit. But if you're born in Grand Rapids and you're raised in that community, and you know who everybody's parents and grandparents are, you also know exactly who isn't from there. And I don't think people try to project that, but that becomes a part of the culture. Does that feel right? Inevitably, and it's 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 not evil. Um, it's a it's a good thing in many ways. Yeah. Um, but my background had been already quite a lot wider, and um, in the Navy and uh, in graduate school at Ann Arbor, I the people that I were meeting were I, I think the people that I associated with a lot were 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 people who had been raised in the Catholic faith. Right. So I think about it. all the, the three girls before Delian were all... Were all uh, Romans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a lot of my friends were too. And, um, and, and, they, so, and to you at that point, when you have good friends who come from a different tradition or are have a different color skin or aren't right. from the same place, 
the 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 line about you know the fence is yeah. way farther out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the line between Christian Reform folks and Reform Church of America. <laughs> right, right. It's way out there. Right. All right. So uh, coming to Grand Rapids uh, at the first semester, it's a great place to learn to teach. I was given four sections of American literature, which I'd been studying uh, intensely at U of M. And uh, Bill Camps, the principal, said, what do you want to teach? I said, I'd like to teach American Lit. He said, okay, gave me four sections. <laughs> I could really focus my preparation on teaching that course well. Wow. And gradually That's I quite got... quite a gift for a teacher. Yeah, it's a huge gift. Almost nobody has that good fortune. Right. Gradually I taught English literature and then the basic 10th grade writing course and the advanced creative writing course. And I had some, I had some wonderful students there. So it was a terrific place. And eventually... Sort of by default, I became the department chairman for a, a department of six or eight or ten English teachers, which was gratifying. And but but I had a sense. This is great, and I'm learning to teach all these courses. But I could not face the prospect of doing that in this place for for forty years. Yeah, I could not. The world's a little small. It. it feels a little small sometimes. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I looked at programs, and I found a program in a PhD in English and Education at U of M, and that would prepare me to teach college English and prepare English teachers, which I had a real interest in pedagogy and said, you know, some of these things we're doing are, are great. Some of them are misguided. They're certainly thoughtless. Yeah. So I had I was getting a portfolio of values. And, and pedagogy is is the art of teaching. Is yes. That, yeah. Right. Right. But there was pedagogy that was going on that wasn't growing out of a deep set of values about who children are, what do people really need, and and how do people learn. Mm. So <clears throat> I was interested in. This program, and it, and I knew something about the director of the program, a man named Steve Dunning, who was, who was a charismatic guy, and bright, and he had edited a, a really well-known collection of poems for children, and uh, reflections on a gift of watermelon pickle. Oh yeah, we've had that. Yeah. Sure. So I got I got admitted to his program and uh, moved to Ann Arbor. And uh, started in. We came with with Sarah. She was she, how old was she at the time? She new new baby. Yeah, she would have been. She was um, less than two years old. I was going to say about yeah. two. Yeah. And so she was uh, born in Grand Rapids, and then born you in moved, Grand Rapids. You moved to where, where? 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 Which campus were you actually? You were in Ann Arbor at the time. Yes. Okay. Right. Yep. It was a good program and uh, and demanding. Uh, in that we met the graduation requirements for the Ph.D. in education and the Ph.D. in English. Oh, wow. And uh, so it was very stimulating to me. I, I, I loved it. And I got to take some courses that crossed over between philosophy and linguistics and language and psychology. Wow. Uh, some brilliant professors I had the time of my life. And one of your 
your your brother Rob is also rolls pretty deep in linguistics. Rob has a PhD in linguistics, and he is an expert in West African language, particularly. Yeah. He's done a lot of translation of a lot of unusual language. He's developed translations for languages yes. that were not translated. Yes, Jukun, Kutep, yeah. Mandinka. <laughs> ones, ones we all know well. But, <laughs> but so in, in your family, there was a, you, you have have some propensity for language and maybe exposure to Navajo and other mm-hmm. languages beyond typical, which maybe I'm just right. speculating here, but there's yeah. something in your DNA and your cultural upbringing that yes. made language uh, a focus for at least you and your brother. Yes. Pretty, pretty much everyone in your family I, is, yeah. I think so. In different ways. Yeah. And, and, and partly it's the, the interest in, in the culture too. Right. Separating culture from language is a mistake. A mistake. So kind of like philology where you're studying yes. the, the philosophy of a language, which involves yes. the culture and all of that. So... Yeah. So you get your PhD in education, and if I'm remembering correctly, there's three schools that you were in leadership positions, and did that happen kind of right after getting your PhD? No, um, right after graduating, <clears throat> I took a job at Central Michigan University. I had I turned down a couple of jobs. My kids raised my eyebrows. I turned down a job at the College of the Virgin Islands. And, uh, <laughs> Seems like a mistake to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've thought about that. But uh, Central Michigan University is, is right in the middle of the state. It was going to be pretty close to Ann Arbor. It was going to be pretty close to Grand Rapids where grandparents were. And um, it was at that time really on a roll. Central was a was doing really well in the state. I did that for three years. I had a joint appointment in English and education. So I was teaching writing and I was supervising student teachers and I was, I was assistant director of this uh, teacher education program that was producing like a thousand students a semester. Hmm. Um, I did that for a while, but that was just the beginning of the Rust Belt days. Okay. I was talking virtue about this. Yeah. And uh, I was a young assistant professor, no tenure, and the, the, the word was coming down, we're going to be retrenching. Yeah. We're going to be cutting the departments. There'll be cutbacks, yeah. Cutbacks, and it's pretty obvious who's going to get cut. It's last hired. Yeah. And uh, so I was looking for jobs in the West where the money was, Texas, Arizona, California, and I had some pretty clear ideas about what, what God wanted me to do. Uh, and clearly, God was going to want me to take this job at Pepperdine. <laughs> <laughs> you worship the same God I do. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was in dialogue with them. And meanwhile, sort of out of, totally out of the blue, I was getting phone calls from a doctor in Walnut Creek, California, whom I'd never heard of. I didn't, never heard of Walnut Creek, California. And uh, out of the blue, he called asking whether I was, would be willing to be considered to be um, the founding principal of a new school that they were open, going to be opening. I wasn't interested at all, David. <laughs> I had no coursework in school administration, no managerial experience there. I was set to be... You hadn't done a lot of fundraising. <laughs> None. <laughs> I was set to be a college professor for the rest of my life. Mm. 
but he kept calling. And finally he called about an hour after I'd made flight arrangements to fly out to Pepperdine. And I'm not a mystic, but Delianne and I had this firm feeling, we're going to have to talk to these people. So you turned down Malibu for Walnut Creek. <laughs> you know, I I'm, thought Walnut Creek sounded like Little House on the Prairie. I, mean, I don't know how, how your God speaks to you, but if you can't hear the Virgin Islands and you can't hear Malibu, then <laughs> I guess you have to go to Walnut Creek. Well, it was, uh, I went from, I, I really, I, I stopped in Walnut Creek. Actually, Walnut this, Creek's a nice place. Yeah, it's a nice place. It turns out it's not a little house on the prairie. No, it's, it's a beautiful part of the East Bay of the San yeah. Francisco Bay Area. And these people had great questions. Mm. Um, I told them, look, I have no degree in school administration, no experience. Why are you interested in me? He said, well, that's exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to do something The last thing here. we want to do yeah. is to replicate the, uh, the current models here. Great. Oh. And uh, Pepperdine is a good place. It is. Fine place. It's a great place. But you felt called to, to go to... Yeah. Uh, you, you saw the... Uh, you, you used to have a sign on your desk, I think, at Lexington Christian Academy that said... To say good things don't just happen. Is that right? Things don't just happen. Things don't just happen. Yeah. There's a there's two things. There's two messages in that. Yeah. One is you better get off your butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things don't just happen. Right. The other thing is there's a providence that governs my life and the universe. And uh, God is in it. Yeah. So I have a similar sign on my desk. It just says uh, it says do epic shit, but it's, yeah. uh, you know, um, yeah. It's a slightly different version of the same <laughs> yeah, thing. Right. Your daughter gave it to me, so you can blame her. But no, but the, um, I, I really like that, that, that whole concept. We, I like, there was a, um, the little yacht club next to my parents' house on the bathroom wall in the men's room was a sign that said, pray to God, but rode towards shore. And it had a guy in a rowboat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both, both matter. So, so you end up starting with this team of people in, yeah. in uh, Northern California, you started Contra Costa Christian, Christian School, School, which yeah. is the name of the county. Yeah. And you were there for how many years? Eight years. Yeah. And that's where you discovered Sea Ranch and the beauty of Northern yeah. California. Yeah. Raised and your children there. That's when uh, Northern California got imprinted, or California, on my, my kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which now, so the youngest, Jeff, and his wife, Anna, and their two kids live in San Francisco. Yes. You and Delianne live in the East Bay in, in Berkeley, effectively. Yes, uh, right next to our daughter, Jeannie, and her three kids and her husband, Mark. That's right. So so you've and got... And then we live in Southern only, California. Only an hour and a quarter by, yeah. by Southwest Airlines from Sarah and David. Yeah, although we lived up in... We lived in the Napa Valley for eight years um, when you guys were still sure. lost in Boston. Yes. But the... <laughs> <laughs> joking. So... So you were there for eight years, and then you um, and had a very successful, uh, really helped create a school that's been very successful. Yeah, it was it was blessed too. Um, I had the good fortune of the, the providence of hiring a terrific uh, team of, of fa faculty for this new high school. Mm. I hired uh, four people who were really good veterans. 
one of whom was Lillian Eiton, may she rest in peace, who was one of the great English teachers of America. She had been on the East Coast and we recruited her. And uh, Hal Kemp, who is a master math teacher, and a couple of others. And then I found some really charismatic, really talented, bright young rookies, uh, including a man named Paul Gizzi, who, is, uh, who had been a, a professional soccer player. And, um, and he, several other people. He created your soccer team, right? Oh, yes. And what was his, you told him a theory about how you build a soccer team, which was, I thought was fascinating. Paul had been the, uh, the um, goalie for the, one of the goalies for the San Jose Earthquakes and the Seattle Sounders. And so he, he looked at it from the goal. Right. So he took the best athlete in the high school and made him the goalie. Yeah. And everything starts there. Right. Yeah, well, that's total football. You start from the back, you work your way to the other goal. That's, there you go. In, in a way, in a way. And no. Paul, was, Paul yeah. was amazingly charismatic. Kids would, kids would walk through walls for him, and they would, they would love to be around him, and he was a master coach. And so, in a way, I mean, thinking about Peter Thiel's criticism of typical education, which maybe resonated in a lot of ways with some of the things mm-hmm. that you were trying to change, mm-hmm. um, when you actually approach education as these people mm-hmm. are all made out of people, just like mm-hmm. we all are. Mm-hmm. And they're, if we believe that there's a, a design and a creator, mm-hmm. that, there's, that these are all really important. That's why humanity matters. Yes. We're all important, each one of us, not in some aggregate, but right. individually. Right. Then you want to invest in each of these kids, know their families, know who they are, know what their interests are, help right. them find their passions. And in a way, you, you, that also means you need talented teachers right. who will help the kids find that inside themselves, kind of like you had to do as a, when basketball didn't work, you found running. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Peter Thiel says uh, somewhere in, in the first half of the book, Something like start small, yeah, and get really good at it, right, and then scale up carefully, right. And uh, of course, I hadn't read Peel then, Teal then, but that was my instinct. That resonates, and, yeah. Yeah. So we started. Actually, I think people who start schools would be say, "Well, that's not starting small." But we started on day one with eighty-nine kids in grades nine, ten, and eleven. Wow. And um, I was teaching, I was teaching the writing course. And uh, so I was seeing firsthand most of the students. And um, we, we, it was a challenging education, but I think what the kids would remember was that it was really fun. Yeah, no, I think in, uh, there's a story about your dad helping you on the playground your, your father, who was a master educator, yeah. was helping you out, and you were standing on the playground, and a kid came running out. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty pretty much it. Uh, I was talking to Dad, who had come out for the winter, and, and it was my handyman. We didn't have a huge budget, so we, we invented a lot of things. Yeah. Dad came out to be my handyman. He was retired, and I was talking with him. He's in overalls. I've got my tie up to my chin, and... Uh, the hallways there are outside, it being California. Right. And uh, as I'm talking to Dad, a door swings open right there, one of the classrooms, and this kid runs out. 
yelling at the top of his lungs. And he grabbed a, a big wastebasket, big steel drum, and he raised it above and slammed it on the concrete right next to us. And then he raced off across the playground. <laughs> I mean, w w I looked at Dad instinctively to see, say, what do I do now? Yeah, how badly do I beat this child? No, I'm joking. But, well, yeah. I mean, has he even broken any rules? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> he spread it off into the neighborhood and disappeared. And uh, Dad tur turned to me and said with a grin, Barry, be patient with boys like that. They make great board members. <laughs> that's, a, that's, one of my, that's one of my many favorite stories. That's a good one. Um, yeah, the, the kids... You, you, a friend of mine said, you can't steer a parked car. So, you know, the ones who are moving are the ones to focus on. Yeah. Maybe you can help redirect them. Yeah. The, um, so you, you, obviously that was very successful. I know you're at Eastern Christian, you're superintendent of schools in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't mind, I think maybe we'll skip ahead to Elsie, which was, a, I think, a good experience for you. And you mm -hmm. helped that school through some diff mm -hmm. difficult transitions. Yeah. And then you, uh, you ended up moving up to Boston, to Lexington Christian Academy. Well, this is a sign of my poor career planning. I was looking at my career and saying, okay, it's time for me to get back to college teaching. I've been away 12 years now. If I'm gone any longer, I'm going to lose my credibility uh, to be a college professor. So, I mean, I announced my departure in like November and so I could start college searching. And actually, there was, a, there was a, a job that fit me really well at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Oh, yeah. So, and my parents were getting older and I thought, well, you know, that's clearly God's plan that I'm supposed to move my family back and I'm supposed to get back into college teaching. Um, But it wasn't the plan. The colleges are famous for their really leisurely recruiting process. Right. I mean, at least three on-campus interviews with uh, increasingly uh, high levels of interviews. And this was taking long, and I was getting exasperated. And uh, at that time, I got a series of calls from um, Lexington Christian Academy in Boston, which I really didn't know anything about. Uh, but I got a call from a man named Gordon Vanderbrug, who was board president there, whom I knew vaguely, who had been uh, uh, probably a freshman or sophomore at Kelvin when I was a senior. Yeah, I think he was in the same class as my parents or maybe a year behind I or something. I think probably yeah. so. And, uh, well, you know, he pointed to the college tie and what's a guy going to do? <laughs> Would I have a cup of coffee with him? Of course. And he asked me some questions about education and what I was interested in. And I told him, Gordon, um, be glad to talk to you, but I'm going back to college teaching. See, so I understand. <laughs> so two weeks later, I got a call from the vice president of the board. Hey, I'm going to be down in New Jersey. Can we have a cup of coffee? Oh, boy. So eventually, I... I I started listening again to the voice on my shoulder. Those hounds of heaven, they don't... Uh, they the don't, they hound don't. of heaven was on my trail. <laughs> and uh, it was a school that was in transition, that serious, that needed to be almost reinvented. Yeah. And, um, 
And so we were there for 17 years, and it was, once again... And um, you did something kind of remarkable there. I remember you telling me about this. You were, how long were you in Boston, in Winchester? 17 years. 17 years. You came into a school that was a, a good Christian school, mm-hmm. but it wasn't competitive with some of the, mm-hmm. the better, particularly in the Boston area, we have right. great college preparatory high schools. Yep. So if you're going to do college preparatory education in New England, you better... You, yeah, you, you better have your chops. Come to play. Yep, come so, to play or get out of the business. Yeah, and so if I'm if, if I'm stating this correctly, I've talked about this before, I think, but I've uh, I love using this reference. You came into the school and you were in a good to great scenario where you were right. You said, "Look, we're doing okay here, but we're not where we need to be." Right. And so, how did you? You know, everybody has their favorite teacher in third grade, and everybody has the things that they think are just fine with where they're coming from. How did you help a good organization become a competitive organization with the better college preparatory high schools in the Boston area? Well, for one thing, when I was hired, the mandate from the board, from Gordon, the board president, was uh, keep the spiritual nurture of the school strong, but enhance, improve the academic program. And that was my mandate very specifically for the first three years. Right. And during that time, working with Gordon, we worked on a strategic plan that we called Vision 2000. This was in, you know, early 90s. Right. And at that time, 2000 seemed safely distant. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we first did a, um, a look at current conditions, a ruthless, not-for-public dissemination picture of who the school is and what we're doing just r- really rigorously measuring and looking at it. Yeah. Things like retention of students. Uh, mostly you, you talk about enrollment, but the real key is retention of the people you have. And our um, attrition was way too high. Yeah. We were taking people in the front door and they were leaking out the back door. Right. And so we, we set goals, and we made everybody's job is enrollment. Right. Everybody at the school. Everybody at the school. And that means everybody. Not, that means everybody. If you draw a paycheck here, it's your job. And we've, we all, together, we have this goal. Right. And... Uh, so that means the janitor, that means the, the janitor, person in the, in the front right, office, that means right, everybody. Everybody. Uh, and it succeeded. But we also had to not just raise expectations about this the program, we had to actually change it. Right. And so that meant gradually some... So you did assessments of your teaching staff. Yes. And yep. you helped them set the bar higher than maybe some of them wanted to? Yes, and then you yes, and, and and part of what you talked about that I thought was interesting is you, you, set the bar where it needed to be. You helped and you did assessments and showed them what they needed to get mm-hmm. to, and then you allowed them to create a plan and, and you helped them get the tools to get there. Right. Yep. But not everybody wanted to follow through on the plan. Not everybody did, and um, we had some candid conversations. Yeah. I can remember to a couple of my colleagues, uh, I said at one point. This place does not exist to give you and me jobs. That's an unusual conversation in some parts of the education sector in America. Yeah, and 
<clears throat> nobody could refute that, but but it didn't come easily. Yeah. And uh, anyway, gradually people bought in, and, and my leadership team, my administrative team, um, we 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 bought in to this goal of growing the school and growing the academic program while keeping this a place of spiritual nurture, a, a big tent, yeah, but a big tent school, uh, theologically. This was not a Dutch Christian Reform school. This was a, oh, no. a broadly Protestant Christian school. Well, actually, you, you not weren't even, even Protestant. Protestant. Right? No, we probably 20, 25% of our kids were Catholic kids, yeah. Episcopal kids. Um, there were cop, uh, Egyptian kids who were who, Coptics. Coptics. Oh yeah. We had a number. Always had a number of uh, Armenian Christian kids. Right. I remember that. Greek yeah. Orthodox. And uh, I, I think for me that mix of uh, diversity in, within the within the tent was really felt exciting a lot like and felt fun. a lot like Christendom. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They're all God's kids. Yeah. Even if even if they don't believe in a God. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, go ahead. We did a couple of other things that were daring. We had nothing to lose, and we were small. So we were probably the first school that essentially advertised on uh, public radio. Oh, wow. Um, through uh, B- WBUR. Yeah, in Boston. We yeah. would buy That's time NPR so that station. they, would, they yeah. would read our tagline. Oh, wow. I remember that. Yeah. And... Um, Anytime I'd go to a headmaster's meeting and sit down, they'd look at my name tag and they'd say, oh, hey, I've, I've heard your spots on NPR. How's that working for you? Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is about the time lawyers are actually starting to advertise. Right, Can right. You rem- <laughs> You're just ahead of lawyers. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So in LCAC, you ended up, I mean, that, that school has become one of the best Christian schools in, in the country. It is. And, it, and you also... And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but as a part of developing the quality of education there, you also attracted more resources. You're yes. able to create a healthy endowment while you were there, right? Um, so that the school could continue and maintain that that tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's the connection? I, I mean, wait, waiting for Superman was a fascinating movie to watch. I'm not an expert in education. I know it's been criticized by the public education sector heavily. Um, and when you're running a private school, it's very different than when you're running a public mm-hmm. public school too. Yeah. So I'm willing to give lots of room there for people to disagree. But when you're trying to deliver excellence in education, um, one of the people that was in that documentary was a professor at Stanford who talked about the the, the correlation between quality of education and um, uh, overall education, I guess. But he was talking about how if if in America if we could fire the bottom five percent of the worst instructors and just higher average instructors that he thought our education system could be comparable to Finland, which is one of the best in the world. Do you have a theory on that, or does that connect or not connect with some of your ideas? And I know public education is different, and I'm not trying to get yeah. too gritty here, but I, th- I just I find that really fascinating. You seem to have turned around a school, a very specific type of school, mm-hmm. by changing the level of quality. Mm-hmm. And that all, that all of a sudden opened up the floodgates, in a way, to mm-hmm. a lot of people coming with resources and, and, and wanting to be a part of it. Yeah. There isn't a very strong correlation between credentials in educa- in t- for teachers and performance. And I worked in t- 
teacher education at University of Michigan, Central Michigan University, at Gordon College in Boston. And uh, I don't have a deep loyalty to those official channels. I, I can't speak ill of them, but for myself, when it came time to hiring, I was looking at the quality of the people, their passion, their their ability their to, execution. Really, to yeah. execute yeah. and to really come alive in a classroom with kids. Yep. That was so much more important than whether they had these boxes checked. Right. And so one of the I think one of the things that really worked for me was deliberately every day of the year I was looking for great teachers. Right. People who could potentially be great. One of the things Jim Collins talks about is get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. Yes, and the right people in the right seats on the bus. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Yes. Right. Yep. Which is true for any organization. Yeah. Made up of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it meant in one case, for example, that the high school biology teacher had to move over and teach middle school kids. Because... Mm. Biology was changing as a subject area and becoming much more technical. The, um, in, in fact, at, at LCA, we had to make biology the pinnacle of the science curriculum, not sort of the, the pedestal. Not the starting point. Yeah. Because uh, the, the new biology required not just a knowledge of living things, but that cellular right. um, biology, which is which is really chemistry and physics. Right. So, and, so, and you had some special partnerships, right, with, with via NASA and was it the Feenstras and so on? Yes, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jim Feenstra, whom, whom I'd re recruited actually twice, was a captain of the, of the uh, robotics team. And uh, it's not a coincidence that his wife was working for a, a, team, a, a company building uh, um, modules for space flights right. and uh, so so under Jim's leadership the school's uh, robotics team won the national championship which is you know they're competing against the high school in Houston or where the uh, the astronauts kids go right and a number of other really powerful powerhouses in uh, across the country and um, um, this is not just another paper certificate. This is the big leagues. Yeah. It's not just like winning the league championship in soccer. Well, and that could open up opportunities for those kids. I mean, you, oh, you, sure. So LCA ends up sending you know, two of your kids went to Stanford, your own children. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids went to Harvard, went all over mm -hmm. the place to a lot of the mm -hmm. better colleges in America. Right. Including Calvin College. Yeah. Um, a, lot of, I mean, a lot of great schools. Right. So... Uh, and the kids were going, were not just locked into the prestige schools. Right. Um, they were going down to Rice because Rice had this really great computer program. Right. They were going. Um, uh, had you heard of Kenyon going, College at the time? Uh, well, of course I knew about it. But uh, Kenyon did not have a high visibility over there in Ohio for, <laughs> for kids in, in Massachusetts. They were probably more drawn to the Southern schools if they were... If Thinking of a small liberal arts college. They were going to Duke yeah. and Virginia but, and to UVA, Stanford yeah. and, sure. and Boulder. A lot of great schools to pick from, but doing it deliberately and finding the right one for their interests right. and talents and tastes. Right. Yeah. 
And they were, and when they got there, they were thriving. Right. So you had, you've had a long career in education. You have a, had a long interest in writing and poetry. And now you are compiling and, and writing uh, your, own, your own book called Final Exam, which is, tell us about Final Exam and the project you're doing with Brook Street Books. And, yeah. uh, Final Exam is poems, includes poems focused on teachers, their students, and the teaching life, and somewhat about schools. Yeah. And these are poems that I, uh, that caught my ear and eye over the past, say, 20 years. Right. And uh, I found some of them in the New Yorker, or in uh, College English, or um, even in, you know, say, Christianity Today. Um, poems that have a, have a real voice. Sure. A recognizable, distinct voice on the, uh, about kids or about a favorite teacher or about what schooling is like in America. So I've been saving these up, and, and I got to a point where I thought, hey, you know, um, I think we've got enough here for a, for a book. And, um, and so you've had to call some of these. Some of these poets are still alive. Yes. Like Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. <laughs> very, yeah. very alive. So this is a wide range of, of poets. There are about half are well-known poets. Right. You'd, uh, a lot of name recognition there. Um, yeah, I've heard of this one, Yates, but it's apparently quite good. Heard good. You're quite Yates. good. Yeah. yeah. You've maybe heard of Carl Sandburg. Exactly. Yeah. You may have even heard of Chaucer. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't meet him in person, but I've, uh, I've read the work. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then about half are, are lesser known poets, and a couple of are by people who aren't primarily poets. Right. Um, one is by a, um, a nurse. Uh huh. And uh, her teacher that she writes about is a cadaver. Oh wow! Um, so this is this is wide ranging. One of them, a couple of them, are by former students of mine. Oh wow! Um, uh, so so I've been collecting these, and they're uh, I, I think um, it's they're also as I said poems with a real voice. You can hear somebody speaking. Right. And, it comes uh, alive. They're, they're also real poems, but they're they're approachable. You, you don't have to have a PhD in English to no, understand. Not it. even always a master's. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have a question. So I know I was talking to your publisher this morning, and uh, she said that you're in the early stages of this. Um, mm -hmm. But I thought it might be interesting if you could pick a few of your favorites, maybe a few of your yeah, three or four of your favorites, and uh, give us a taste of what's coming with final exam. We'll, we'll come back and do this again okay. when the book's out, but I thought we'd just get a taste oh, sure. of it. Um, here's one. Here's one of the first ones that I collected, threw into my file, my manila folder. This is The Benedictine Hand by a poet named Andrew Hudgens. Now class, she said, we must be careful when we push the glass tube through the stopper, thus. She slid it halfway through the rubber hole. It stuck. She rammed it harder, twisted. It snapped and snapping, drove the jagged end of glass into her palm. Blood dribbled on the desk. Now that's what 
you are not supposed to do, she said. She held two frozen fingers up as if to bless us. I've cut the median nerve. This is what's called the Benedictine hand. It's paralyzed. She flexed her thumb and last two fingers. The blessing fingers stayed erect. <laughs> then, pale, she wrapped her red hand in a wad of towels, left the room. Quick, angry steps. We boys, although it wasn't accurate, thereafter called her Mrs. Claw, <laughs> not telling each other, not telling each other how we wept that night or how, dear Mrs. Claw, we won't forget the bright blood, Benedictine hand, or with what steel you held, us, held before us, your new deformity. Named it, explained us, explained it, and blessed us with your error. It's the beauty, the supreme beauty of failure. Yeah. Making it a teachable moment. Yeah. That's fantastic. And who, what was that one? Who was that one by? Andrew Hudgens, who's a good poet. Yeah, excellent poet. Can I read another one Please. for you, David? No, I think we'd love to hear a few more. <clears throat> okay. John Giardi was a major figure in, uh, in letters and literature uh, in the previous century. He has a poem titled, On Flunking a Nice Boy Out of School. On Flunking a Nice Boy Out of School. Yeah. The, the first one was student talking about teacher. Here is a teacher talking about a kid. Okay. <clears throat> Addressing this student. I wish I could teach you how ugly decency and humility can be when they are not the election of a contained mind, but only the defenses of an incompetent. Were you taught meekness as a weapon? Or did you discover by chance, maybe, that it worked on mother and was generally a good thing, at least when all else failed, to get you over the worst of what was coming? Is that why you bring these sheep faces to Tuesday? They won't do. It's three months' work I want, and I'd sooner have it from the brassiest lumpkin in pimpledom, but have it, than all these martyred repentances from you. <laughs> so that's the story about a kid who didn't get the work done and came with, you know, a it's, nice kid who didn't do the work. Yep. You still got to flunk This him. is a teacher who is exasperated beyond patience. <laughs> I've, I've had some people work with me like that sometimes. It's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> These are great because I think it really helps. One, I think it really connects the dot between different perspectives on teaching, where people come from, mm -hmm. but also the different elements of teaching that you get caught in mm -hmm. at awkward moments that make it memorable. Yeah. What's another one you've got there? <clears throat> Here's one. Uh, execution. Um, a former football player talking about his coach. Last time I saw my high school football coach, he had cancer stenciled into his face. Like pencil marks from the sun. Like intricate drawings on the chalkboard. Small X's and O's. 
that he copied down in neat numerical hand before practice in the morning. By day's end, the board was a spider web of options and counters, blasts and sweeps, a constellation of players shining under his favorite word, execution, underlined in the upper right-hand corner of things. He believed in football like a new religion and had perfect unquestioning faith in the fundamentals of blocking and tackling, the idea of warfare without suffering or death, <clears throat> the concept of teammates moving in harmony like planets. <clears throat> and yet our awkward adolescent bodies were always canceling the flawless beauty of Sunday after Saturday afternoons in September, falling away from the particular grace of autumn, the clear weather, the ideal game he imagined, and so he drove us through punishing drills on weekday afternoons and doubled our practice time and challenged us to hammer him with forearms and delivered, devised elaborate last-second plays, a flea flicker, a triple reverse, to save us from defeat. Almost always they worked. He despised loathing. Uh, he despised losing and loved winning more than his own body, maybe even more than himself. But the last time I saw him, he looked wobbly and stunned by illness. And I remembered the game in my senior year when we met a downstate team who loved hitting more than we did, <laughs> who battered us all afternoon with a vengeance, who destroyed us with timing and power, with deadly impersonal authority, machine-like fury, perfect execution. Wow. Do you want to read, uh, do you want to read your poem? Uh, or do you sure. want to save it? Sure. <clears throat> Give me a moment to find it, will you? No, I won't. That's, uh, you know, I, I think we all understand the value of education. Sometimes we don't understand it very well. And the, um, the reason I wanted to have you on was obviously, you know, you, didn't, you weren't born saying, gee, I really want to be an educator. Mm -hmm. um, you went through a circuitous route to get to the places that you were. Uh, there was no, you know, there was no direct line from place to place. It was, uh, it was, um, well, it was, it was something that it seemed like um, you came to step by step. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask your publisher if she can maybe uh, help help find this document that you're looking for. Would you find the red people? Yes. So well, we're, we're digging, digging uh, through <coughs> a lot of paper uh, that is, well, it's, it's a lot of the, the, the manuscript copy. Um, I just thought of you, you've, uh, you've been working on this mm -hmm. through the holidays. You've been making a lot of progress. The poems that I've read have been fantastic. In fact, my younger cousin Marie, who's an officer mm -hmm. in the Marines, she's flying, mm -hmm. um, flying helicopters. Uh, she's flying Cobras. Mm -hmm. um, I was telling her about this book, and she said, "Well, you know, I don't really, uh, don't really do poetry." And I said, well, "You don't have to." Uh -huh. uh, and I, I sent her, in fact, I sent her Aaron uh, Lewis's fine poem about parenthood mm -hmm. as an example of maybe a poem that a marine might enjoy. But uh, you know, I think part of the point, and, and uh, Brook Street Books has been good about this, is is 
a lot of poetry has become inaccessible unless you really study it. Um, where I think a lot of what you're doing here is you have fine poems and excellent poems, but also poem, poetry that's accessible to anybody who's willing to sit down and read it and pay a little bit of attention. And also, I think fun poems. I mean, fun, a lot of the stuff is just fun to read. Yeah. I mean, the Benedictine. Um, what, hand. The Benedictine hand is pretty. I mean, you you can see the blood dripping. You can see the the biology teacher. She was biology, correct? Yes. Yeah. Stab her hand by accident and use that as a yeah. teachable moment. But the way that the student, the student's perspective on that, and they're valuing how that failure in the classroom when she stabbed her hand became one of the most memorable moments of their education with that teacher. I think that says something to all of us that hopefully we can take with us that there is no failure that you can't learn from. There is no, in fact, the failures mm -hmm. are often where the best things happen. Um, and, and the relationship between the teachers and, and uh, students, between the students, some of that learning is, is what you learn from your peers. So it's, a, it's, the, it's relational. Yes. Um, well, here, before I read my own, I'd like to read one, the another one of the really early ones that I said I, I, I've got to copy and keep this. It's a poem by Theodore Retke, who was for a long time on the faculty, English faculty at University of Washington, and uh, well-known major poet. His poem, "Elegy for Jane." My student thrown by a horse. Oh no! Um, talks about a relate the unique relationship that can be between uh, teacher, professor, and student. Okay. I remember the neck curls, limp and damp as tendrils, and her quick look, a sidelong pickerel smile, and how once startled into talk. The light syllables leaped for her, and she balanced in the delight of her thought a wren, happy, tail into the wind, her song trembling the twigs and small branches. The shade sang with her. The leaves, their whispers, turned to kissing, and the mold sang in the bleached valleys under the rose. Oh, when she was sad, she cast herself down into such a pure depth even a father could not find her, scraping her cheek against the straw, stirring the clearest water. My sparrow, you are not here, waiting like a fern, making a spiny shadow. The sides of wet stones cannot console me, nor the moss wound with the last light. If only I could nudge you from this sleep, my maimed darling, my skittery pigeon. Over this damp grave, I speak the word of my love. I with no rights in this matter, neither father nor lover. Wow. Unique, a unique relationship, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the the final poem today. It is entitled "Final Exam." You wrote this one. Can you tell us a little bit about it before you sure. read it? Sure. This pulls together two uh, times two strands of my life as a naval officer and as a classroom teacher. 
and um, sort of moving back and forth between those. And um, I was blessed by my experience as a naval officer. When I came back into teaching 10th graders, after, after having been bosun on the, on the deck and navigator of a ship, you know, a class full of 16-year-olds were not that tough. <laughs> <clears throat> well, here's, here is the final exam. Outside 201, a locker door clangs. Wind from the west shivers the window slats. Behind my navy gray desk, I await three final exams for AP Brit Lit. Graduation rehearsal at four in the gym, mandatory for seniors and faculty. Ava lays her blue book on the stack, squares it with purple nails, mouths, thank you. <laughs> in the hall, she shrieks long and thrillingly, her sandals slap-slapping away. The bosun's pipe trills. Set the sea detail, single up fore and aft, Take in all lines. The clock above me clicks to 3.09. Calendar leaves flutter. May, June, May, June, May, June, in the west window breeze. Outside, two guys toss a football in the parking lot. Summer school classes start June 17. See your counselor to register. Waiting, I slide open English Lit bin and file two copies in AP exam. Behind owl glasses, Gordon looks up, nods, resumes for 10 extra credit points. Pilots on the bridge, rudder amidships, back one-third on port, all engines stop. Quote, how has reading poetry changed you? <laughs> His profs will love him. Gina writes on, frowning, twisting a strand. She can go anywhere if she dumps that loser guy. Grades must be recorded in academic file by tomorrow noon. Failing seniors today. I push back, stand up. Time to wrap up now. They hand over the last two exams and I stuff the stack into my pack. At the, Gordon, at the door, Gordon turns back. Thanks, Doc. Have a good summer. You too, Gordon. Good luck at Kenyon. Not ready to go ashore, I stash my mug in the left top drawer, thermos in my pack, erase whiteboard, Toss senior homeroom list. Scan the staff memo. Ray September schedule. August 30, all faculty report. Welcome aboard new faculty and staff. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Tear off June and July. Circle August 30. Summer's lease hath all too short a date. 
a week at Sea Ranch, then back on deck. With breakwater light abeam, come left to 165. Left to 165, aye. Ocean swells roll in from the west, shiver the bow, hiss along the hull. Clear of the harbor, she takes up the slow, steady roll of ocean swells. The captain has the con, on deck the after underway watch, steady as she goes. There's a lot of uh, metaphor between, or analogy, I guess, between uh, teaching and, and running a crew. Yeah, steady as she goes. Even the same words, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Well, I'm really excited to uh, to see the final results of final exam when that comes out. And uh, as always, I love hearing the stories of your life. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your son-in-law, but um, I've I've heard them and I've asked you to repeat them over and over again. And I'm happy we got to record them because uh, um, they are very fun to listen to. And I think uh, people who are enjoying the Kick Aspirational podcast will certainly enjoy hearing how your journey has taken you to this place and uh, into this project. So thank you, Dad. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And I've told you how wonderful it is to have a son-in-law. I'm honored and, uh, and blessed. This has been the Kicker Aspirational Podcast. It is not, uh, it's not just a spectator sport. It's an interactive project. I'd love to hear your questions, uh, your concerns, and, um, and maybe read some of them as we, as we do future podcasts. Uh, you can reach me, best places on Instagram, David58, D-A-V-E-E-D-5-8, or at Kick Aspirational. Thank you. Be Kick Aspirational.